Hebrews chapter 3. Therefore, holy siblings who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle, high priest whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house. If we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. So as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation, and I said their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, siblings, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. As has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as you did in the rebellion. Who were they that heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with him was he, uh, and with whom was he anger, angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter His rest, if not those who disobeyed? So we see that we are not able to enter because they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. So I've been referring to the author of Hebrews as the preacher since no author is identified in the text itself. But we learn a little bit about the preacher in this chapter. Preacher is not an English major. Because there's some mixed metaphors happening here that's that uh would not have been tolerated, but they're helpful. It contains, uh, there's two, there's a, there's a metaphor of a journey and a metaphor of uh, a house. If only they had RVs back then, could have brought it together, be a journey and a house, but that's the privilege of living in, this, in the time we do. The journey metaphor is familiar, of course. I mean, we, every week, no matter who you are, where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. But the preacher specifically is placing us on the Exodus journey. Exodus is a story of promises fulfilled and promises yet unfilled, fulfilled. You know, Israel is delivered out of slavery, promise kept. Unfulfilled is the promise of a homeland. Israel occupies this territory in between, between the promise fulfilled 
and the promise unfulfilled. And that area is wilderness. And that is not just uh, their story, it is our story. The preacher wants readers to understand it is us on that journey. Promises have been filled, fulfilled. They've gotten us started. They're moving us along this journey. And they want, and those promises are intended to maintain hope in these promises yet to be filled. Now that is a rich metaphor, and you could take it in various directions. But then but it opens with this other metaphor, this salvation as a housing project. Now, I suspect that there's a reason for this. Uh, and it's a reason relate, that came out of a conversation I had with a guy named Carl about 10 years ago. Because that's when I first preached through Hebrews. Uh, I was about four sermons into the series when Carl and I went out for coffee. Carl happened to be a professor of New Testament. He was on sabbatical. Uh, he and his wife and six kids had been attending our church for a few months. As we're sitting down, Carl says, you know, I wrote my dissertation on Hebrews. Great, right? Oh, I, oh really? Uh, great. What specifically? Carl paused, smelled his mocha, stared me dead in the face said about the intended audience. What? What do you mean? How'd you write a dissertation on who this thing was written to? We don't know who it was written to. I mean, Hebrew lacks a number of things that you'd expect in a letter, even though it's called a letter. For example, it's not addressed to anyone. Romans is called Romans because Paul directs it to the Romans. The book Philemon is called Philemon because Paul addressed it to Philemon. Now we know these books because, or these letters, because they recopied them and distributed them through other churches and then finally they became collected into the Bible. And there are some letters that don't have specific uh, uh, addressees because they are meant just to be written and circulated. I mean, and so there's some people think, well, maybe Hebrews is one of those books. They're called the general epistles. But they're like, well, this book's really Jewy. I mean, there's a lot of Jewish stuff in here. So I bet it has some sort of Jewish audience in mind. So they call it Hebrews. But they're like, what Jewish audience? Because there are uh, Hebrew churches or Jews, you know, the diaspora. They're all over the place in the uh, Roman Empire. So I said all that to Carl. Carl says, no, it's particular churches. Which churches? It says the churches in Jerusalem. I scoffed. Seemed a little too easy. But by the end of our caffeine-fueled conversation, I bought it. I bought it. It's, it's a good dissertation. You should publish that thing. Because, it, uh, yeah, most scholars still think, well, we don't know who it was written to. Carl knew. Carl knew. It's a quirky book. It is a quirky book. But the idea that it's written to churches in Jerusalem helps explain some of those quirks. You know, and this will get developed further in, uh, into the book. But it's important when you think about these people, these churches, as living in the shadow of the temple. I don't know how much you know about the temple, and I'm sure lots of its architectural features had, were designed for practical considerations. Um, but it also had 
cosmological considerations that informed the architecture of uh, the temple. The temple is, is it, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's designed to reflect the design of the universe as, as they saw it. It's, it's sort of the cosmos uh, scaled down and made human-sized. And it's built around a series of concentric circles. And the circles are courts. And who you were, uh, whether you were a Gentile, if you were a woman or a man, it depended on what court you could um, go into. But at the center of these concentric circles, at the core of the temple, is the Holy of Holies. And this is meant to represent the fact that at the center of the universe is our holy God. And once a year, and only once a year, the high priest could go, would go into the Holy of Holies in order to atone for the sins of the people by the sprinkling of blood on the altar. So the temple, it represents a promises fulfilled, right? After all, the temple sits on land that God promised to his people. It's God's own home in that land, fulfilling God's promise to be their God. And it's the means by which they facilitate their relationship with this God. In short, it's, it's how a holy God uh, nurtures a holy people in the holy land. The problem for the churches in Jerusalem is that tensions between Rome and uh, Israel are at an all-time high, and they only seem to be getting going up. You know, you would think that Israel was sort of on the fringes of the Roman Empire by the way they uh, operate. I mean, if you were on the fringes, you can understand why you'd try to, might rebel, might, but no, Israel is in the thick of it, and yet they are constantly creating trouble. They're, they have this sense of entitlement. They take offense at some foreign power ruling over them in their land. And the problem with this is that Israel is a chihuahua picking a fight with a lion. You know, the lion has growled. The lion has showed its teeth, even taken a few swipes with its massive paw. Still, that chihuahua keeps yipping and yapping and nipping. And before the century, the first century concludes, the lion will indeed pounce. And Rome will not, when it does pounce, Rome will not only prove itself powerful, the level of devastation that they unleash on Israel comes across as spiteful, like they're, like they're angry. I mean, it will be, right, it's nearly 2,000 years will pass before it's a Jewish state again. And, and the temple isn't just looted or set on fire. It is dismantled brick by brick. And I mean, I don't know if you've seen, these bricks are huge, it, but they leave one wall. It's as if they decided to destroy enough to ensure it never gets built again, but leave enough intact that they can never forget what they lost. And that is, in fact, what's happened. That wall is still there, and it's the Wailing Wall. 
So the preacher composes this sermon to a people anticipating living with this tension, living with this threat to a fulfilled promise. In chapter 3, the preacher reminds them, look, we are on an exodus journey. So the temple, yes, it is evidence of a fulfilled promise. But it's evidence of a fulfilled promise in the way delivery from slavery was evidence of a fulfilled promise. We are still on a journey. Its purpose was to point us, to move us in a direction, to send us on a journey toward an even greater promise. A promise yet unfulfilled. For an Exodus people, God's fulfilled promises are always like that. They point us toward what remains unfulfilled, toward our unrealized hopes. Communion, for example. It is evidence of a promise kept. Eat and drink, remembering the sacrifice that Christ makes to atone for us. So it's something that's happened. But it is also a pointer towards what remains yet to be fulfilled. It is a foretaste of that heavenly banquet. And the preacher's second metaphor, this housing project, it sort of underscores what that temple points toward. Salvation is a building project, but the ultimate objective is not a literal building whose design right, reflects a rightly ordered universe. No, it, it's, it's a metaphor. The house being built is us. The temple then simply points us towards a final unfulfilled promise, an unrealized hope. It calls, it's, it, it, it reflects a rightly ordered universe in the way that we are to reflect a rightly ordered uh, universe. The preacher refers to this ultimate hope as uh, entering into God's rest. And that's a reference to Genesis 1. After six days of creation, God rests. But not because he's like, oh, I am tuckered out. I am done. No. God rests because God looks over the whole creation, finds it complete. Everything necessary for it to thrive and flourish is there. So God rests. The promise that remains yet unfulfilled is that one. The promise of entering into that rest, of being made complete, of being made whole. Thriving, flourishing, gloriously. That's where it's all moving. That's what we're on a journey for, toward. But until then, we are still in wilderness. Bad stuff happens in the wilderness. It can get pretty wild. There are lions in the wilderness. There are chihuahuas with attitude in the wilderness. Sometimes the demands for survival are overwhelming. You can be surprised how much it takes out of you, how much it can take from you, what you have to learn to let go of. 
Even things that you thought would be there forever. I mean, the temple, it's been there 500 years. And the preacher cites a psalm which talks about the impact of this on, on, on the heart. It actually reminds me of Jen's, uh, the research paper Jen was reading me portions of. What, what the psalm talks about what can happen to your heart. This paper is talking about what, what the wilderness can do to your brain, what trauma can do to your brain. Psalmist describes it, the impact as a hardening of your heart. What happens is your brain, your brain disassociates, cuts off parts of its own self. And what happens then is we're no longer capable of flourishing, we're no longer capable of thriving, experiencing that rest. We just merely survive. But what the Psalms are with the what Hebrews is saying, no, look, but the opposite can happen in wilderness too. There can be a hardening. There can be disassociating. There can be uh, just a mere survival. But also in the wilderness, in the midst of that suffering, you can participate in Christ's suffering, right? Because the, the good news is, is, is that we do not suffer those things alone, that Christ is familiar with suffering. And Christ can do what he does for our suffering, what he does with his own. His suffering and dying becomes a means of achieving glory and resurrection. So even in the midst of this wilderness, suffering can contribute to moving us. It can move us away from that, the, our destination, and it can inch us toward it. I find that in my own exp wilderness experiences. You know, I think... Uh, both of those things at the same time sometimes because there are things that have happened that I, I don't know, I, there's, I still carry some anger, uh, shame, you know. But at the same time, those things are also the things that have made me more compassionate, more capable of loving. They haven't, so they're both there. It, one of the things I like about the preacher mixing the metaphor, bringing in the housing project into this idea of a journey is that it emphasizes that to get through these, to get through the journey, we got to do it together. We're being built into something together. Uh, suffering and struggle, it's always, it's always bad, but it's the suffering and struggle that isolates you, that moves you away from people. That can be the really devastating stuff. AA has its, uh, the saying, you're only as sick as your secrets. Uh, the idea is that you, got, you can't allow your, your wilderness experience to isolate you. It has to draw you into community. And that is part of the way in which that uh, atoning work of Christ occurs is through, the, through a community. Anyway, so we are on a journey. We have, their promises have been fulfilled. Not only sort of biblical, theological ones, but also personally, right? I mean, here you are. You are still on the journey. God has fulfilled some promises. Work those promises out in your life. And they have sustained you. You are on that journey. We are on it together might be worth reflecting how what are those promises that have been fulfilled in my life who has been uh, among those who have activated me on that journey who have got me going on this journey and kept me keep me there 
promises fulfilled. But as with other promises, they, they fulfill a promise, but they always have to keep us pointing toward the ones yet to be fulfilled. Um, sort of a silly example, but there's that show, What Not to Wear. Uh, it was sort of a fascinating show. I, I thought the, uh, what's it, Clinton and Stacy, I thought they were great. Because what was interesting is they'd find somebody that needed some serious makeover, right? And, you know, and what part of what they would do is have them uh, put on things in their wardrobe and say why they wore them and explain and talk them through them. And then they, Stacy and Clinton would come out and tell them how, it was a how they looked terrible and they needed to fix it. But they were, they were very tactful. But, and one of the themes that comes up in those episodes is oftentimes uh, people's, people sort of get stuck with a certain look because whatever was, you know, they, whatever happened in the 80s or 90s, they, that was, they stopped being able to move beyond that. And without even thinking it, they, they sort of try to hang on to that past by dressing as though they were still in the 80s and 90s. I mean, it wasn't just a, a makeover they needed. It was a grieving process. They had to grieve what had been lost. Well, it being Sunday of Reformation, there's that phrase, reformed and always reforming. Because the reformers recognized that the ways in we, which we experience God's fulfilled promises, we can have a tendency to hang on to them in ways that don't allow us to keep moving on the journey, right? The church constantly needs to reform, needs to be, keep recognizing that we're on a journey, keep pushing. You know, there would always be a tendency to do like Israel did on its journey. They got this gold from Egypt and then they get stuck on this mountain, they panic, and they turn that gold in, in, into an idol. Well, we have a tendency to take the things that have been gold to us and make them idols. So, oh, on the journey, we recognize we're always, there are promises fulfilled, and there's, but there's still more to go. So we celebrate the past, we celebrate what brought us this far, but we don't cling to it. We don't let it keep us from seeing where it is pointing. It's pointing us toward wholeness, towards being made complete, be, pointing us towards a world reordered as God intended to, to live into that divine rest. And so we don't settle for anything less because the best is yet to come. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen.